0: Welcome to the Vegan Family Kitchen podcast. My name is Brigitte Chem and I am joined today by Nick Bathurst from Australia. Hi, Nick. Good to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you today. You are a dietitian and nutritionist. You have been so for over 30 years. And since you yourself had breast cancer in 2013, you became a passionate advocate for plants. You've discovered the health and the weight loss benefits of a diet that is powered by plants. And so now today you specialize in helping women navigate the midlife situation of hormones, and you help them also release unwanted weight and optimize their health by eating more plants. It's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for being here.
1: You're so welcome, Bridget.
0: So tell me a little bit about your story. I'm curious to know um, about your journey, how you came from uh, your, I would say, probably traditional nutrition training to a uh, to the plant based side of the force.
1: I know, I yeah, I was definitely a food pyramid, healthy eating advocate, and uh, and then when I got breast cancer, I basically went back and did some more research and, you know, really driven from that place of I thought I was really healthy. How can I avoid getting cancer again? And I think that my, you know, research led me down paths that I had never looked at before, you know, coming from that, you know, from the institution of, you know, dietetics and and nutrition You are not really taught that there's another way to eat other than what the industry driven, you know, meat and livestock corporation, the dairy corporations who fund these institutions. I discovered that as well. And so, yeah, it was just a a whole new world. And I just think it's I just get so excited about it because I think especially in the last 10 years since we've discovered, you know, about our healthy microbiome. We need to be eating more plants. That's the bottom line. You you don't have to become a vegan, but you definitely need to be eating more plants. And you know, as you and I both know, it's it's so much more economical as well. You know, people say, "Oh, it's it's expensive to eat," you know, healthy. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. Get Richard's book to find out how it's not.
0: (laughs) You're so sweet. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit more about what your life in terms of, you know, health and fitness was like and how the breast cancer diagnosis came to you.
1: So, uh, like, I just, I had a pain. So I I was very healthy, fit and healthy. I had, uh, was raising four children. I was home educating them and I had Always in my busyness of life made my health a priority. So, you know, if that meant getting up super early, um, you know, made time to to exercise, I, you know, this is why I could have written your book, Bridget. Because I was, I I seriously, every single sentence in this book, (laughs) because I, you know, I, I was managing a home of six people, home educating children. And because my health was such a priority and creating these beautiful, healthy meals for my family, I created a meal plan and it's what I help my clients do. So it was a three week cyclic plan. And I did week one, week two, week three, go back to week one. And there was, um, I mean, I know yours is, a, is slightly different, but I know we're on the same page with that. And it was sort of had seasonal variations. And, of course, you know, some things would drop off as the kids got older and the kids started to get involved and, and do Thursday nights and things like that. But it was such a priority. And it just meant that, you know, while I ate, you um, close to what the family ate, I I wasn't a a plant-based back then, but I would have like a smaller portion of meat and more vegetables, or I would have my spaghetti bolognese on, you know, more vegetables rather than the pasta. So even though I was cooking for a family of meat eaters, I was still able to maintain my weight and my nutrition by just adjusting, you know, the, the portions. And, yeah, I think that my life changed a lot after um, I got breast cancer. About 18 months later, um, I actually, uh, a very long story, but I I woke up to the fact that I was in a very toxic relationship Um, my children were older by that stage. I actually had to leave my marriage. Um, And so my journey um, around food is that I started to read all this information about plant-based but I was so entrenched in the fact that we need fish and eggs and meat for protein, they were the last things to go. You know, over the years, as I learned more and more, I realised, oh my gosh, I don't need that wild caught salmon. In fact, my health is going to benefit if I'm not eating that. It, it actually doesn't matter anymore. Um, so yeah, it was it was a it was a very it was a journey of years, really.
0: You know, a lot of women get breast cancer, unfortunately. Um, Many of them do some kind of research, but I don't think, I hope I'm wrong, but I I don't think the majority go fully plant-based or anywhere near after their diagnosis. And that's something that I, I struggle with a bit. My husband is a breast cancer pathologist. So we, we talk about this a lot. And what do you think enabled you and maybe enable some other people like you to see the light for lack of a better word, right? Like to make that transition as opposed to all the people that just stay stuck in their habits.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that if you're really healthy and you don't have any contraindications, then, you know, perhaps you can follow a diet similar to the Blue Zone study. You know, so you are having some, you know, some meat uh, you know, and fish and eggs in good quality as a condiment rather than the main source of, of your meals. But I, I can wholeheartedly say that if you have had a cancer diagnosis the best way to prevent another diagnosis is to cut out all of the animal products because we know that animal products and dairy contain estrogen, contain so many uh, toxins and, um, you know, compounds that are, are not going to be helpful to your health. And, yeah, I, what else can you say, really? it's I, I mean, go and read the China study. That, that did it for me. The fact that, you know, dairy products contain a protein called casein and casein switches on tumor growth. Why would you want to touch dairy?
0: It's, I think we've been obsessed as a species, perhaps, you know, in the last few hundreds of years, even thousands of years with, you know, having children that grow big and strong. And to a point that might have been an evolutionary advantage for a while, but clearly, I mean, what has made us so big and so strong and so tall and so big in some cases might not actually be good past a certain point. And we, all those, those, um, all that protein and those hormones that are naturally present in the milk, for example, don't appear to have served us. Is that? Something you'd agree with?
1: Absolutely. We're protein obsessed.
0: (laughs) No, no other word about it. And I, I, you know,
1: I, I just say, you know, too much protein is as damaging as too little. And there is more and more research coming out all the time saying that excess protein, you know, is damaging to our health. And, you know, people say, well, where do you get your protein? And you and I know that there's an abundance of protein. I mean, beans and lentils are half protein, for goodness sake. But even things like oats, you know, our whole grains uh, have protein in them. You know, you are, as, as one of the great, you know, plant, I can't remember who says this, but it's like, if you're eating enough calories, you're eating enough protein. And one of the, the worst things is these protein supplements that people think they need to be putting in shakes and things like that. We don't even know if your body recognizes those highly processed shakes, you know, the protein in that even recognizes it as protein. So, yeah, um, we do not need excess protein. Uh,
0: the one thing I find puzzling, though, is that Cancer patients in particular get told they need extra protein. I don't know if that's the case in Australia, but it's certainly the case here. How do you reconcile all of that together?
1: Oh look, that is just such a rabbit warren. I don't even know whether we want to go down there because they also encourage them to just eat whatever they want. You know, oh just just don't just just you know don't lose any weight. So just eat ice cream and chocolate and 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 you know keep keep your calories up. There is no focus on health in those industries.
0: <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's right. You, you just said it. I, I've seen that before in the literature about wh- why hospitals are not going more, you know, plant-based and serving more healthy food. And part of the reasoning was like, well, we don't want people to lose weight. And I mean, we know that... Uh, people may not be adapted yet to eating healthier meals, so so much food waste, and so we're just going to keep on serving them the same crap. And I'm like, where do we start addressing this? This is maddening.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it's, you know, we're a sickness industry rather than a wellness industry.
0: Yeah, the sick care. It's not healthcare, it's sick care. So. What happened then? um, Well, first of all, you did not succumb to breast cancer. You're still with us here. So that's something I celebrate. Um, And you continued practicing as a dietitian after that. So how did you change your practice after your your own personal breast cancer diagnosis and your plant-based revelation?
1: I think it's just always when you're working with a client, you know, my philosophy is we start where they're at right now. So, you know, rather than reinvent the wheel, I don't give out, you know, prescriptive cookie cutter diets. It's starting where they're at now and also educating. So wherever possible, I would start explaining why they might benefit from moving away from dairy and encourage them, say, to do an experiment. And I love experiments. Because I find that, you know, when we tell ourselves we're only going to do this for a month, we can manage that. And then at the end of the month, when you've realized that, oh, actually, it was the dairy that was causing all of these symptoms, you know, um, then that gives you the impetus to keep going. And, you know, the other thing I would do is always encourage them to say, look, you make a spaghetti bolognese every week. Let's add a can of lentils to that. Let's add a can of chickpeas to the curry. And when people realise that it's still the same flavours, but we're just adding in some, some beans, and sometimes they transition to the point where they're not adding the meat anymore, so they're still having, you know, those, those products and you know, if they're on a weight loss journey, then we can still have the, the flavors of these meals, but we we you know we cut back on on the on the liquid fat and the high fat foods so that they can transition to you know releasing weight. So it's just a gentle progression and it really depends on the particular client and their you know nutrition status and their health goals.
0: Tell me a little bit more about how people come to work with you what brings them to work with you and what kind of um, i guess transformation they wish to achieve in terms of their health or their fitness or whatnot
1: yeah i i specifically work um you know with women approaching midlife in midlife um, because i feel like it is such i mean i'm there myself and uh i've managed to navigate really well and I feel like it's so confusing. There's, there's such a lot of confusion around, you know, menopause and 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 um, and you know what what we're going through. And I feel like it's and it's also a time in women's life where you know things at their environment, their family life is changing. It's often when that the kids have, have left home, so they're empty nesters. They've got that time to to refocus on themselves again. Uh, and so, you know, there is this increased awareness of, I need to spend some time on me now. I'm starting to ha- see these changes. Their body shape can be changing. Women who've never struggled with weight before can suddenly find that, you know, they- they've got a muffin top, even though they haven't changed their diet. And, you know, this is because of hormones. You know, our hormones are changing. And as, you know, the, we, our estrogen drops away, our body actually stops storing fat on, say, the thighs and the hips, and now it wants to store it around our middle. So, you know, there are very good reasons why your shape is changing, why you're struggling with weight, and there is just so much you can do, and I just get so excited because it's we don't have to be a victim of our hormones, and, you know, when we embrace the power of plants, eating more plants... I find that, you know, women are just so excited because they can, you know, lose those extra few kilos that they've gained. They, you know, their hot flushes, you know, start to to get better. They start to sleep better. There is just so much power in eating more plants.
0: Is it just that, just eating more plants? Is it so easy? It's. It is easy in
1: theory, but as you and I know, our, we are entrenched in our habits, and it is never, it is never super easy to make lifestyle changes. So when I say easy, I'm, I'm not. I'm acknowledging that there is some work on you know the individual person to make, because you know sometimes there's things like alcohol that have become. A habit. And you know, alcohol is one of those things that there are no redeeming features of alcohol. And I did drink alcohol before I got breast cancer. So um, and then once I did get breast cancer, I had to stop ignoring the research. And there is so much research linking alcohol and breast cancer pretty much so that the link between alcohol and breast cancer is as strong as the link between smoking and lung cancer. So alcohol is not your best friend. And I I think this is really important to understand because, you know, once you start drinking alcohol, your liver stops breaking down estrogen. It stops breaking down cholesterol, a lot of things. And so, you you know, and and what happens is that there's any half-processed oestrogen in your liver, it dumps it back into your bloodstream, saying, I'll deal with it later because I've got to deal with this alcohol. And it's that half-processed oestrogen that is associated with our female cancers. So alcohol is huge. And a lot of women find themselves in midlife in a place where they are drinking more and, you know, out of habit. Really?
0: There's been a big conversation in Canada these uh, last few weeks because the new national guidelines have come out and now basically they're timidly but surely embracing this idea that, yeah, maybe alcohol is never really a good thing. And there's such strong resistance. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking of how over the last let's say 50 years, drinking has become acceptable for women, which was kind of a feminist victory. You know, we can smoke, we can drink, we can do everything the boys do. And I think women have possibly been a little faster to get off the smoking bandwagon. I'm not sure about the data there. But um, but the, the, the drinking has become such a social meme almost you know the 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 wine uh wine wednesday and you know mommy's glass of wine and i mean there's so many popular culture products that are if you just go to like a shop and they have all of these funny i'm using air quotes here funny products that feature this idea of associating motherhood with wine and drinking less so beer but um it it felt like I don't want to say a victory, but it did feel liberating. But maybe it was a, a bit of a hoax after all. I think women might have been conned into embracing alcohol. And obviously, it was also good just for the, the same thing as the, the cigarette companies, but it just increased their sales to be able to create products that women liked. And it turns out maybe it wasn't that great for us.
1: Mm. And um, I just ca- recalled um, the human podcast I can't remember his name he's an incredible researcher and um, he does a lot of studies and one of he was studying alcohol and basically saying that even having like one glass of wine a night or four or five on the weekend it didn't matter how you drank alcohol you had an increased level of anxiety every single day and here we are thinking that alcohol relaxes us when in actual fact it is doing the opposite and it is damaging your liver. It is for women. It is affecting your hormones. It doesn't matter how old you are. You know, you it is affecting your hormones. As soon as you drink alcohol, your estrogen levels rise. It doesn't matter how old you are. So I think that, you know, it is definitely worth the experiment. And that's where I started You know, I did the Feb fast, the dry July, the October and always realized that I felt better. I slept better. I didn't have, you know, the the hunger that you wake up with. And so I always encourage clients to to do those experiments. But I also heavily educate because I think that when women hear what we've just talked about, they're a little bit surprised, a little bit surprised at how damaging alcohol is to us women specifically and increasing our cancer risk. And I am excited because there is a lot more sober movements on the rise and women talking about the fact how good their life is now that they're not drinking alcohol. And we're not talking, you know, what we would define as an alcoholic. We are talking women who who were just casually having a couple of glasses every night.
0: I have a friend um, who uh, is a cardiologist, and he would always joke, you know, what is the definition of an alcoholic? And the answer is someone who drinks more than their doctor. And um, in the medical profession, I think in any profession, when there's people earning more, there's also been... a a drift towards drinking more alcohol, more, you know, sophisticated alcohols. And it seemed like the fashionable and well-meaning thing to do. I think there's also so much uh, literature around uh, studies even that are, I I think, confusing to some extent um, about the so-called benefits of red wine. But listen, if the only, kind of uh, fruit that people consume is, you know, some grapes through their, their wine. Well, of course, people that have some kind of fruit are better off than the people that don't have any fruit whatsoever. But, you know, you could have a cup of blueberries <laughs> instead of a glass of wine and be better off. But it, do, do you experience, do you see that resistance? Do you see confusion in your patients and your clients? Sorry there. And, and how... How, if at all, does it get overcome?
1: Uh, yeah. It, and that's it, it's very tricky because this is something that I can only educate on, encourage, uh, encourage them to have, you know, a, a month alcohol free, mm-hmm. experience that for themselves. And then, really, it, the ball's in their court.
0: It, I mean, that's it's. What was
1: that, sorry
0: I said, let's just give it a try as you see. I think the one month experiment is a great way to do it. And then also, by the way, you're going to save a lot of money um, mm, Absolutely. If nothing else.
1: Yeah, exactly. It is always worth the experiment. whether it's you know moving away from dairy for a month, whether it's um, even coffee. Now, I know that, you know, this too will, you know, have women shrieking in the background going, no, don't make me give up my coffee. But, you know, coffee, it, for some women, when they give up coffee, they just cannot believe how, better, how much better they sleep. And this might only be
0: one coffee a day so true. I did write an article that's on my blog somewhere. If you go to veganfamilykitchen.com slash blog about uh, how I came to the decision of foregoing coffee, which was a big deal for me because, you know, I was one of the first French language bloggers in the world and my blog was all about coffee and that was in the mid 90s. And uh, it was a really big deal for me when I decided, and I wasn't even drinking a lot of it, but I was probably having a double espresso every morning and some other form of coffee sometimes, and it—I gotta say—it was the worst month of my life in many ways. Um, but the major transformation I experienced after—and again, I'm not denying that there's no, that there's not some health benefits to coffee drinking. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a fruit, so yeah, there's going to be benefits. <laughs> so, but clearly, there's also for some people at least a, a downside and it's worth having it as an experiment. And I thought for me, it would be a temporary thing, by the way, and uh, after my daughter was born, I, there was, it was like about five months after she was born and it was my first outing, you know, without my child where, and I was breastfeeding. So it was like, you know, an hour and a half where I can step out of the house, it was on Mother's Day. And I went to one of my favorite coffee shops and I was like, I'll have an espresso and I will savor it. It will be so good. And I, I got so high, I thought I would not be able to walk home or bike home, you know, I was jittery. I was like, holy goodness, what happened to me? It was so potent and I don't think everybody, I think there's different ways of metabolizing um, caffeine. Some people are fast or slow metabolizers and I was clearly uh, of the kind that uh, had serious struggles with the metabolizing of caffeine. So I'm not missing it at all. Um, You know, I wanna say, I would like to hear your thoughts about this because I was reading, and I really love the parenting section in the New York Times. Jessica Gross sends a weekly newsletter and it is very often full of wisdom, but there was something that uh, disturbed me a little bit uh, last week. And you, you reminded me of that when you said, you know, when you mentioned, Oh, don't take away my wine, don't take away my coffee. What is it going to be next? You know? And she was so in in the parenting newsletter there was this mention about the importance of pleasure and yeah there's things that are not like super healthy but if they bring you pleasure you know pleasure is important in life and things like that and my reflection and and it was like well yeah there might be a health cost but yeah what's it you know maybe you have one less year of life statistically speaking but what's the big deal And my response was a fuzzy one because it really made me feel very uncomfortable. But also I was thinking, well, number one, that pleasure can be replaced with a different pleasure uh, that we just don't know about yet. Um, Maybe, for example, I mean, there's lots of non-alcoholic beverages that are coming on the line that are super interesting, but also it's not just one year of life. Sometimes, you know, people may... Statistically, just die a year sooner, a few months sooner, but it's the misery of having your life dominated by chronic disease, like diabetes or, you know, heart disease. Having I don't know a stroke, living with the consequences of cancer, which can suck big time. So mm-hmm. that is not pleasurable, um, and I I don't know how to bring this conversation. Up in a way that doesn't make me sound like I'm trying to kill the spirit of the party. You know, it's not that I'm against pleasure, uh, but can we find different ways to have fun? How do you feel about that?
1: Look, I I feel like um it's it's very individual. And and unless you've done the experiments, you don't really know that there's another side. And I think that, like for me, that first year of not drinking alcohol was revolutionary. The first time I went out with my girlfriend, and we used to stay at each other's houses so that we could drink and not have to drive, and I just thought, what am I going to do? And so the very I made a deal with myself, and I said, okay, I was six in six weeks into being not drinking, they didn't know it. And I said, okay, the first drink has to be non-alcoholic, and then if you think you're going to die, you can have an alcoholic drink. And I got to the end of that first drink, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing! I can do this. And as the night progressed, and 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 they sort of, you know, became more imbibed with alcohol, I'm like, I'm present. I'm, I'm, a, I'm like to the conversations in my head. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to wake up feeling amazing. This is great. I felt I didn't feel like I'd missed out on anything at all. And then uh, about a couple of months later, I went to a big function, uh, presentations. And then when all the presentations are over, lights went out, bang came on and everyone got up and danced. And I'd actually never danced sober. I was 50 the year that I gave up alcohol. And I just thought, well, you either sit here, girlfriend, like an old maid, or you get out there and you, you enjoy yourself. Got up onto the dance floor and realised no one cared. I had a ball. And it's just, you know, experiencing that for yourself. Do, do you know what I mean? And I think, the you know, coffee's the same. You know, don't hear us saying that you, you have to give up these substances without, you know, experimenting, educating You know, for some people, one cup of coffee is fine. But I found that when I gave up that one cup of coffee, not only did I fall asleep quicker, and I'm a good sleeper, but also I wasn't getting the lunchtime natter-nap slump. And I'm like, I didn't realise this was associated with that one coffee a day. So unless you do those experiments, you're never going to discover that there is another side and then actual actual fact, you may feel even better than you do now.
0: I need to ask you to share something. You mentioned in our conversation before we started recording that there's uh, different types of personalities when it comes to certain things, uh, and you were mentioning the moderators and the abstainers. Can you say a little bit more about that and what it means when it comes to making dietary and lifestyle choices? Mm, I love this. Uh,
1: thank you for asking this question because we can get really hung up on the fact that, you know, we're weak-willed or we have no self-control. And I th- think this is especially so for women because we're, we're emotional, tend to be more emotional eaters than men and, um, you know, and we, we often struggle with, with our weight And so we can think that, yeah, I'm just, I just don't have any self-control. I'm just weak-willed. And a couple of years ago, for the life of me, I cannot remember who who coined this. It's quite famous. Um, She talked about you're either an abstainer or a moderator. And what this means is that for someone like me, I am not a moderator when it comes to chocolate. So, I have to abstain. And what that means is I can't have one piece of chocolate and not want to eat more. I want to keep eating, you know, the, the whole block. And so I don't have chocolate in the house. Whereas something like potato chips don't even do anything for me. I wouldn't even open the packet if, and I and I could have one and then go, oh, yeah, that's enough. So it's I believe it's about understanding yourself and not feeling guilty because you can't have chocolate in the house. It's totally okay. Because the other thing that's really important to understand is that these things like chocolate and these foods that we just find irresistible, the food manufacturers have spent millions of dollars creating that perfect blend of fat, sugar, and salt to create this bliss point That just makes it absolutely irresistible for us, and we just want to keep on eating more. I mean, this is the secret of takeaway food. You know, it just tastes so delicious, and we just want to keep on going back for more and more. So, yeah, please don't think that you're weak-willed or have lacked, you know, self-discipline. You're a you know, we're a product of our modern world, and so, the, the, you know, what it is, it's about setting yourself up for success. I don't have chocolate in the house, but I enjoy it if I go somewhere and I get offered some, you know, or I, I go on holidays and I buy myself some of my organic, you know, vegan dark chocolate and, and I enjoy it. But, yeah, it, it's, I think it's really important to understand that.
0: You bring me to this question when you're talking about takeaway, what then can we do, and I know you and I are golden appreciators of good practices such as meal planning and meal prep, what place do those practices take in your work with your clients? do you think those are useful practices and and how do you do them maybe even for yourself? Mm. I think
1: that meal planning and prepping is non-negotiable if you want to be healthy and there's just no way around it. (laughs) What else could I say? Unless you have the, the funds, the finances to have a personal chef or you're able to access quality foods that are, you can purchase, you know, which is rare, um, I think learning how to meal prep and plan yourself is essential. And, you know, like you heard at the beginning of our discussion, uh, you know, when I was cooking for a family, I had a three-week cyclic menu. I find now that I'm on my own, I tend to cook three Uh, I batch cook three things a week. So on the weekend, I'll batch cook two, and then midweek, I'll batch cook another one, which is a a big pot of something, Uh, and then I just rotate that around. And I have about uh, three or four weeks of recipes that I tend to, to rotate. And then, you know, there's the emergency things. Like we can always fall back on a roast potato and baked beans for example and you know before i can hear you know people listening to get oh but baked beans are full of sugar seriously you know this i loved the i quit sugar movement but it made people afraid of fruit and simple things like baked beans please don't worry about the little bit of sugar in the baked beans embrace the fact that you are having you know some quality beans there (laughs) And so once in a know, while, yeah, that's right. Exactly. And it, but it, but it's, all, it's better than takeaway. You know, even having baked beans on toast is so much better than eating takeaway.
0: I was just looking at this study in some journal of behavior and food or something like that about how people choose um, at home versus at restaurants and of course, you know, the choices we make at restaurants are less inspired by health and this and that. And I that hit home for me because for once a year, I gather, I will say, the courage to make cookies, like the kind of cookies with like icing, you know, Christmas cookies. And every year, not every single year, but I used to always wreck them because I could not bring myself to put as much sugar in fat you know in the cookie as you need to put in to make it a proper cookie right i was always trying to s- substitute things and change the recipe and i would not ask myself those questions if i had a cookie at the coffee shop you know but as, as you say you know you ask yourself about the baked beans because you're at home but if it comes from outside oh well you know you just eat it then i can tell you that if you're ordering noodles from a restaurant like a pad thai The sauce is ketchup. It has a lot of sugar in it. Yep, so true. Something to think about. Absolutely. I have two more questions for you. Uh, One of them is, I think reflecting on the fact that a lot of women um, are in relationship with people who may or may not be interested in changing their own diets for better or for worse. And I feel with certainly my clients that a substantial amount of resistance comes from, yes, but my husband, yes, but my children, yes, but this other person that I cook for. How do you advise your clients around the issue of relationship and different choices? Mm, that is,
1: that's a, a huge issue with many of my clients. Their partners are not even interested in the slightest and i always come back to the only person you can change is yourself and so really work closely with my clients for setting themselves up for success and like you know i mentioned uh, earlier in that you know you, we can we can just cook meals that will satisfy my client <clears throat> excuse me and bring and cook their partners a piece of meat on the side or we can make, you know, their, their um, spaghetti bolognese. If you're making a spaghetti bolognese, put two saucepans on on the stove and cook the same ingredients but just le- put mince in his and put, you know, lentils in yours if you want to take it that far. So there are always ways where there's a will, there's a way. And, uh, yeah, I, I work really closely with clients navigating that. And it can also, you know, come down to the point of asking the clients to the, the partners to please not have their sweet treats, you know, if you can't moderate those things and please put them in a fridge in the shed or something so they're out of sight. Um, but it is really working with that, whole, uh, with, with that individual and setting themselves up for success.
0: So what advice is the number one tip or trick or suggestion you would make to women in midlife who feel like they need to feel more in charge of their health and feel better for themselves, whether or not they've had a catastrophic diagnosis like you did, but what, what would you like to tell them to help them um, get on, on top of their health? buy your book. Oh. You are so sweet. Thank you. But seriously,
1: I mean because that's at the core. And I and I think it can be just so overwhelming and and your book really, you know, just shows it just it talks you through how to make this easy. And and, and making it making it easy in the kitchen is half of the battle. And I think, you know, to, on a serious note, I don't, I do think that you should read this book, but I think education is key as well. I think that we really need more education because when women understand that connection between their health and what they are eating, it, it, it can be a game changer for them. And I don't know why, but we have this disconnect between our health. And what we're eating, it's almost like, you know, it doesn't matter what I eat. Oh, I've, I've got, you know, heart disease I've I've got cancer. I've got diabetes. It's not actually common knowledge in our, you know, medical world that there's a connection with what you eat. And yet we can reverse nearly all of our lifestyle diseases by the power of the fork. So it's it's liberating, it's exciting, um, and, you know, it's empowering when you understand that connection and you start to make those baby, baby steps, those, you know, steps for yourself in the direction of, you know, feeding your body good food.
0: I love it, and I hope others will want to connect with you to um... – Dive into your your wealth of experience and knowledge. So, if people want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do it?
1: I'm all over the place. So, uh, my h- handle is naturally Nick. I am on I have a website and I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and also I have a huge uh, YouTube channel where I have cooking demonstrations and uh, recipes, and I do product reviews. I've got over 60 product reviews now. Clients love them. And uh, so, yeah, and and reach out on all of those channels. There's ways to get in touch with me. I have a mini menopause assessment, which is a free uh, 30-minute complimentary consult with me where I take a peek at your diet and lifestyle, and I'm just able to pinpoint, you know, a couple of things that you can start implementing right away Uh, to move the needle in the right direction of your health goals. And and then if you want my support, we can talk about that.
0: That's beautiful. And all that will be in the show notes at the bottom so people can get a hold of you. I think uh, naturally nicknic.com.au. But don't worry, it will be in the notes so you can just click it. Thank you so much for being here today. It was a pleasure to get to know you and to have this conversation. And I so wish we could get together in person to cook together. I think we would have a blast to have a cooking club meeting in person. Should we at least be less than like 14 time zones away? So we'll work on that. I look forward to uh, connecting more and and uh, continuing this conversation. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: So welcome, Bridget. It was a great
0: conversation.